0: Man, go ahead and grab a seat. And while you're grabbing a seat, if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and grab that right now. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 tonight. uh, As we continue our teaching series through the last few chapters of the book of Hebrews. If you've not been with us, we've just been walking verse by verse through these chapters of the Bible that kind of get ignored or forgotten about. Uh, And I want to show you some scriptures tonight. I want to show you this part of Hebrews chapter 12 uh, in the hopes that it would encourage you, challenge your faith. Uh, One of the things I'm aware of, as we go into a text that we're going to look at tonight um, in Hebrews chapter 12, uh, is that what we're going to see tonight is is a bunch of commands, uh, a bunch of things that Christians are supposed to do. And so if you've ever gotten it into your mind that that being a Christian doesn't really involve obedience to the commands of Scripture, you've missed something key, and you'll miss what's going on tonight. So we are called to obey, and you're going to see these commands that God gives us to obey tonight. But one of the burdens that sits upon me as a pastor at this church is the burden that the Lord Jesus himself gave us in Matthew 28. In Matthew 28, the burden that Jesus gave to the church was this. He gave what's called the Great Commission. And in the Great Commission, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He says, therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then he says these words. He says, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So in other words, one of the things that it means to be a follower, as a follower of Jesus is to observe or to walk in obedience to the commands of Scripture. But one of the things I want to point out is that Jesus doesn't say this. This is so important. Jesus says, teaching them to obey or teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. Jesus doesn't say telling them to obey, telling them to observe. That, that actually one of our jobs as Christian disciple makers and one of my jobs as a pastor isn't to just stand here in front of you and tell you to obey what the, what the Scriptures say but rather to teach how that happens. And tonight we're going to look at some fairly simple commands in the scriptures that I think all of us are going to wrestle with and struggle with at some point along the way this evening. And I want to be really clear that my job here tonight is not to just tell you to obey and send you on your way, but rather to teach you tonight. And I believe in order for us to understand these commands and to think deeply about how we're going to walk in obedience with these, I think we have to understand that obedience to all of the commands of the scripture is ultimately going to come from the power of the Holy Spirit working to renew our mind. I want you to know that obedience is driven by the thoughts that you have in your mind as it relates to the scripture. This is why in Romans chapter 12, it says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And here's why I think it matters what happens in your mind. Because I want to point out three words tonight. It's the title of my sermon. It's what I want you to have in your mind as you think about the text. It's these three words, that ideas have consequences. Ideas have consequences. And here's what we all understand. This applies to every area of your life. Every area of your life, there are ideas that have consequences. And we tend to think it's that our actions have consequences. But the real truth is it's not just our actions that have consequences in our lives. It's our ideas. Look, let me put it to you this way. Some of you have an idea that lingers in your mind. And here's the idea that lingers in your mind. Whatever happens, I don't want to make my mom mad. Right? And that idea is in there. And here's what you know, and here's what I know. That idea has consequences. And so you try not to step on her toes, and you try not to offend her, and you try not to do anything that would make her mad, because you just don't want to make her mad. Ideas have consequences. For for some of you years ago, you made the decision. You had an idea that got into your mind, and here was the decision, or here was the idea that came into your mind. Education is the key to my success in the future. And so you've been going to school, you've been racking up tens of thousands of dollars of debt, you've been killing yourself trying to get an education and a degree because ideas have consequences. Some of the biggest atrocities that have ever happened in world history happened because of ideas. The Most of the terrible things in world history happened because at some point along the way, someone decided this idea, that group of people over there are less than human beings. And whenever that idea runs into someone's mind, it it runs into atrocity, it runs into terrible things, it runs into all of the horrors of human history. Listen, ideas have consequences. It's true in big areas, it's true in small areas. Some of you, the idea popped into your mind as you were leaving the house tonight, it's cold. So what did you do? You grabbed a jacket. Here's the most popular idea for me. This service ends tonight at 8.30. Chick-fil-A closes at 9. Ideas have consequences, right? (laughs) Ideas, the things that run through your mind. So tonight, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read to you these commands in Scripture. It'd be really easy for me to just read the command and be like, so do it! And you're like, okay. But that's not what it is. What I want to try to do is I want to show you how much obedience has to do with what goes on in our minds because ideas have consequences, and I want you to see that in the Scriptures tonight. Here's where we'll begin. Hebrews chapter 12, if you have your Bible with you. Verse 14, it begins this way. The command is this. It says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone. Now, this is an interesting command here. Uh, I notice immediately, it says, make every effort to live in peace, not with just some people, not just live in peace with people who agree with you or like you or who you like, but with everyone. But the one I want to try to point out tonight is this interesting kind of juxtaposition of two words here, and that is the word effort and the word peace. Effort and peace aren't two words we usually put next to each other. Because what we usually try to do when it comes to making peace with people is we kind of think peace is the absence of conflict. And so what we try to do is we try to live in such a way that we're peaceful and there's never really any conflict. And we think peace is just kind of this Zen state of everything being okay. But I need you to know that in the scriptures, when the Bible uses the word peace, it is not merely talking about the absence of conflict. It is talking about the presence of righteousness. And those are two similar but distinct ideas. See, the absence of conflict means that you're never going to do anything that creates conflict because you think that's the road to peace. But the presence of righteousness often comes through conflict. See, I talked tonight about ideas having consequences. And here's an idea that I think lingers in some of your minds. And I believe it is a lie that will keep you from walking in obedience to Hebrews chapter 12, 14. The lie that lives in some of your minds is this. That relational conflict should be avoided at all costs. I think some of you have internalized this idea You've internalized the idea that relational conflict should be avoided at all costs. And what I've I've said since the beginning is that ideas have consequences. And here's the consequence to this idea. The idea that that, that, the relationship conflict should be avoided at all costs. Here's what I believe. I believe this is a lie. And I believe this lie destroys things. I believe this lie destroys marriages. Now, here's what I know. In this room, there's not a lot of married folks. Maybe online a few more married folks. But here's what I know. I know a lot of you want to be married someday. Maybe you're in a relationship. Maybe you're hoping that relationship leads toward marriage. And here's what I know. This idea destroys marriages. That there are husbands and there are wives out there. Maybe you even saw this in your parents' marriage where there were so many issues and there were so many things, but they just decided not to talk about it because it would be easier. Because they wanted to avoid relationship conflict at all costs. You trying to avoid conflict with your significant other is the surest way to implode your relationship. And listen, it probably won't happen today. It probably won't happen tomorrow. But 10 years, 20 years, 30 years from now, if you just pretend there's no issues and everything's under the surface, it will blow up on you. That, that, listen, that, that's why I'm just never impressed with older couples who go like, we've been married 40 years and we've never had a fight. I'm like, one, you're a liar, right? <laughs> It's just true. And, and listen, so to, to be fair, sometimes people say we've been married 40 years and never had a fight. And what they mean by fight is like a knockdown, drag out fist fight. And, like, hey, fair enough. There are many marriages that don't experience that kind of physical violence. But if you mean 40 years in, you've never disagreed on anything, one of you is completely unnecessary in the relationship, right? It's true, it's true. If you're in a real relationship, you're gonna talk about things, you're gonna have different views on things and guess what? There's going to be conflict and some of you have built into your idea of relationships and romance and marriage that you just need to make sure there's never any conflict and that is a lie that destroys marriages. Hey, hear me, it destroys marriages. This is a lie that destroys or divides roommates. Some of you have this going on with your roommate right now where there's one roommate and you all know it, there's four of you but there's one roommate who's not pulling his weight or her weight. She's not doing the dishes. He has people over too late. She's drinking a little bit too much alcohol and everyone knows it and everyone's talking about it but they're not saying anything to her. And if you're like, that's not going on in my roommate situation at all, I have bad news for you. You are the one, right? I think this happens. And here's what happens in your roommate situations. That there's all four of you and everyone's talking about it except the one person but no one's actually confronting the one person and it creates division and pain and hurt all because you've internalized this idea. We should avoid relationship conflict at all costs. And ideas have consequences. It divides roommates. Do you know this idea damages families? Do you know that I bet you almost all of you come from a family where there's something going on that everyone knows about but nobody talks about? Something going on with your dad? Something between the two sisters? something that goes on in your family, something that goes on constantly and everyone knows about it and everyone's aware of it, but no one has the courage to say it out loud because if you say it out loud, it'll blow up on you. You've internalized an idea. The idea is that relationship conflict should be avoided at all costs and ideas have consequences. And then finally, this lie, um, it disrupts small groups. Um, Some of you are in small groups, like you're part of a Bible study, a small group here. And here's what can happen. Um, Small groups get together and there's this weird assumption that you're supposed to put like 12 strangers together in a group and you're all supposed to agree on everything, right? And then someone's like, hey, I have a different view on that. And everyone gets tense because we feel like there's conflict and there shouldn't be conflict. But it's like, no, the small group is the exact place to work out the conflict. But some of you, even in small group, as a part of this church, have internalized this idea that relationship conflict should be avoided at all costs and it is destroying your small group because what's really healthy, what's really right for your small group, for your roommates, for your marriage, for your family is this, the lie is that relational conflict should be avoided at all costs. The truth is is that healthy relationships emerge from hard conversations. That's what it is. Healthy relationships emerge from hard conversations, from awkward moments, from the moment where you say out loud the thing everyone's thinking. This is where healthy relationships come from, from hard conversations, from difficult conversations. Now now just hear me tonight. I'm not saying rude conversations. I'm not saying graceless conversations. I'm not saying like healthy relationships come when you just like beat someone up verbally. That's not what I'm suggesting at all. I just want to put into your mind the idea that the healthiest relationships in your life will emerge from the hardest conversations you could possibly have. Healthy relationships emerge from hard conversations. So here's the question I want to ask to everyone who's here tonight and everyone listening on our live stream this evening as well. Here's my question for you. Who do you need to have a hard conversation with? Who do you need to have a difficult conversation with? Who do you need to have that hard talk with where you get into it with them and really talk about the things that are going on in your life in your roommates, in your relationship, in your family? That's the question I want you to wrestle with tonight. Notice the author of Hebrews doesn't just say, be peaceful all the pl- all, in all places. He says, make every effort to make peace. Make every effort to live at peace. Peace doesn't come effortlessly. Peace comes through hard conversations. True, healthy relationships come from the most difficult of conversations. Here's how it goes on this way in the back half of verse 14. It says this, it says, and be holy, for without holiness... No one will see the Lord. So a couple weeks ago, I was talking about holiness and I was talking about justice. And, and one of the things, one of the points I was trying to make about holiness is I think holiness needs to become a part of some of your, your, your vocabularies. I think for some of you, you've written off holiness as this weird thing. It's kind of a religious thing. Maybe it's like an old school thing, but holiness is not optional for the follower of Jesus. That if holiness is not your mission, then Jesus is not your master. And so again, when it says here that we are called to be holy, for without holiness, no one will see the Lord. We need to understand that holiness is a requirement if we want to be saved. Holiness is a requirement if we want to know Jesus, if we want to walk with him. Holiness is a non-negotiable part of the Christian life. Let me try to describe and define holiness for you here. I want to talk about it in four different ways. Here's what holiness is. Number one, holiness is going to be to be set apart. Um, holiness is to be set apart. That's what the word literally means. It's the idea divided and, and put over here. To be holy is to be set apart. Put differently, to be holy is to be different. It's to be different. The expectation of you as a child of God is that you will look, talk, think, act differently than the rest of the world. That you're set apart from the rest of the world. You're to act differently than the rest of the world. If you want a different image of this, it's that you're becoming less like the world. You're becoming less like the culture around us. I just feel like I need to say to someone tonight, if your whole goal is to fit in perfectly to this culture that we live in right now, you'll just never become holy. You never will. You will never become the holy man or woman of God God wants you to be if your whole goal is just to be like fitting in perfectly to 21st century Western American culture. Like that's just not the culture God calls us to fit into. We want to become less like the world and then finally we want to become more like Jesus. We want to become more like him. When we talk about living and loving like Jesus, to live and to love like Jesus is to be holy. That's what we're called to do. So notice the text is going to say, be holy for without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And there's this contrast between me being set apart and different, less like the world and more like Jesus. There is a contrast between that and you living this type of life. I was just talking about where you're just trying to fit in with everyone, be accepted by the culture, be accepted by the people in your colleges, by pop culture, by everyone around you. See ideas have consequences. And if you want to walk in obedience to the command that calls you to be holy, you need to uncover some of the ideas in your heart. And I want to just perhaps expose one tonight, and here's what it is. Here's the second lie I want to look at tonight. That I can follow Jesus in such a way that everyone likes me. I think some of you have internalized the idea that you can follow Jesus in such a way that everyone likes you. And I want you to know that does not work work. I want you to know that idea has consequences, and when you internalize this idea, I can follow Jesus and be liked by everyone. I can follow Jesus and be in the cool kids club. I can follow Jesus and be accepted on my campus just like everyone else's. It will never work out. Your ideas have consequences. Listen to me. This slide does not work with the biblical view on miracles. But like, let's just be really clear on this. Like just earlier today, I was doing a little study on Sunday with a high school ministry. Uh, I'm preaching on the Exodus story. And if you don't know how the Exodus story works, what happens is the people of, uh, of Israel get brought out of Egypt and then they're brought to this big sea, the Red Sea, right? And they're standing there by the water. And then ultimately what God does is he divides the waters and the people of Israel walk through and they walk to safety and then the waters crash down upon the Egyptians and the Israelites are saved. And you just have no idea how much on the internet you can start to read on this, where people go, this story's crazy. Water doesn't divide like that. And I'm like, like, we know that. We get that water doesn't just do this. We get that loaves don't just multiply in the Jesus story. We get that this is a miracle. But the world doesn't get that. And so if you want to believe what the Bible says about miracles, you can do that. If you want to believe what the world says, that there is no supernatural and there is no miracles, you can do that. But you can't have both. Like, the lie doesn't fit with the biblical view on miracles. Listen, the lie doesn't fit with the biblical view on money. If you want to believe what the Bible says about money, you can't also believe what the culture says about money. You can't also believe what the world says about money. If you think you're just going to kind of fit in with all your friends and how they spend money and also do what the Bible says, you've missed it. You can't do both. Like, let me get to this third one. I think this is important. Um, This view does not fit with the Bible's view on morality and justice. And this is where the rubber really hits the road, I think, for a lot of you. I think some of you want to believe in Jesus. You just don't want to disagree with the prevailing culture, how they view morality. Morality of sexuality and of marriage and of family and of people and of human beings. You just don't want to go against the prevailing morality of our culture. I'm here to tell you, you can believe in biblical morality or you can believe in what the 21st century Western United States culture says, but you can't have both. And the same is true with justice. The same exact thing is true with justice. Like you can believe the prevailing view on justice in this world, the prevailing view on social or economic or racial justice, or you can believe what the Bible is going to say about justice, but you can't have both. They don't fit perfectly together. Neither morality nor justice in our culture today fits with what the Bible actually has to say. And so at some point, you've got to recognize that lie. If I'm going to be holy, like Jesus is holy, if I'm going to be holy, like I'm called to be, I'm going to have to disagree with the culture on morality and justice. And then finally, this lie does not fit with the claims of Jesus. Like, Jesus makes claims about himself that just does not fit with the idea that everyone's going to like you. Do you know that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the light, no one comes to the Father except through me? Do you know that everyone hates that sentence from Jesus? You can't be liked and believe everything that Jesus said. At some point along the way, you've got to say, I am not going to buy into this lie that I can follow Jesus and everyone's going to like me. Everyone's going to approve of me because that's the lie. But do you want to know what the truth is? Jesus in John chapter 15 and verse 18 says it this way. Here's what he says. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Like if the world disapproves of you, If people don't like what you're saying, if they don't like what you believe, if they don't like how you're holy, if they don't like how you're different, just remember they hated Jesus first. And if you think you can be a follower of Jesus but be loved by everyone, you have missed something there. So so here's the question I want you to wrestle with tonight, and I had fun crafting this one. Uh, I want to ask it this way. Um, Is there anything you believe that would make a celebrity or a college professor judge you? Here's why I put it this way. I think there are some of you that really want to fit in with the culture You want to listen to the right music and wear the right clothes and be accepted at the right parties and be in the right clubs and have everyone like you and approve of you and think highly of you. And here's the truth. If you want to do that, you can do that, but you can't do that and be holy. Like celebrity culture is the kind of like a mass culture that everyone believes in and everyone gets along with in society. And some of you want to fit in so bad with society, you don't even think you want to fit in, but you're like trying to do so in kind of like different ways. There's all these ways and it just doesn't work. And then for others of you, you're not trying to fit in with culture. You're not trying to be cool. I think there's a contingent of you, and maybe it's the contingent of you that's in school right now or was in school that really wants to be academically respected. You want to be accepted in the halls of academia. You want to be accepted in the halls of power. And so you're terrified at the idea that someone with PhD after their name would look down on you. And here's the news flash, It's going to happen. If you believe in the claims of God in the Bible, you are going to be judged, whether it be by popular culture or academic culture. And at some point, you just got to get over the fact that some PhD who doesn't believe in Jesus doesn't actually like that you believe in Jesus. You got to get over it. You got to get over the fact that there are going to be people who are just not going to like you, who are not going to think that of you. My question for you is this Have you so shaped your Christianity that it fits perfectly in 21st century America? Because if you have, you're not walking toward holiness. If you have, you're not walking toward justice. You're not walking toward the biblical vision of what we're called to do here. Here's how it goes on in the next part of uh, Hebrews. Pardon me. Verse 15 says this. says, see that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Now, when I see bitter root here, you'll you'll see this phrase highlighted here. Um, Oftentimes, what's taught here in the scriptures is that a bitter root has to do with forgiveness. And so the idea is if someone's wounded you or if someone's hurt you, you should forgive them. You should deal with it quickly so bitterness doesn't grow up inside your heart. And here's what I want to say tonight. I think that is absolutely the case. If someone's wounded you, if someone's hurt you, if someone's done something wrong to you, you should deal with it so bitterness does not grow up in your heart. I want to say that. Because I also want to say that I don't believe that's what this is teaching at all. That's not what this is teaching. So see that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. This is not talking about forgiveness. This is not talking about bitterness. This is quoting something from the Old Testament. And this is the wonderful thing about the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, maybe more than any other book in the New Testament, is going to quote the Old Testament, is going to quote the Hebrew Scriptures to give us a picture of what it expects of us. So you ask the question, where does bitter root, where does this phrase show up in the Old Testament? And I love when you ask questions that are already in my notes. Let's go there. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 29. It'll be up on the screen here. It says this. It says, make sure there is no man or woman, this is God commanding the people of God, clan or tribe among you, whose heart turns away from the Lord to go worship the gods of those nations. And be sure that no root among you that produces such bitter, make sure there is no root among you that produces such bitter poison. So this is where this bitter root idea comes from, that people are going and they're worshiping other gods. They're going to the other nations, the other gods, the idols, the pagan nations, and they're worshiping. And there's no root, he says, let there be no root that grows up among you that produces such bitter poison. And then it goes on in the next verse to describe what this bitter root and this bitter poison might look like. It says in verse 19, it says, when such a person hears the words of this oath and they evoke a blessing on themselves, thinking, I will be safe even though I persist in going my own way. They will bring disaster on the watered land as well as the dry. So it says, don't let a bitter root grow up. Don't let a bitter root grow up in your life. And here's the question. What is the bitter root? And I think the key to what that bitter root is is found in this word, thinking. It's found in what you think. The bitter root is not some sort of lack of forgiveness in your life. The bitter root that poisons the well of your life are ideas you have about God that are not accurate ideas about God. Here's what it says. Thinking, I will be safe even though I persist in going on my own way. And God's saying that type of thinking, where this bitter root comes up and poisons the whole well, that will ultimately destroy your relationship with God. That will cause your life to become poisoned. See, ideas have consequences. And here's the third idea, the third lie I wanna talk about tonight, it's this. And here's the lie, that thinking carefully about God is only for pastors and theologians. What Deuteronomy 29 is going to talk about is the type of person who thinks about God in an improper way, who thinks about God in a way that actually causes their life to be poisoned, that causes bitterness to grow up inside of their own heart. And I actually think there are some people listening online or in this room right now who have convinced themselves that thinking carefully and deeply about God, studying theology, really thinking deep thoughts about God is for pastors, it's for theologians, it's just not for you. And so you enjoy coming in this room, you like the sermons, you like the worship, you like the fellowship, but thinking deeply about God, that's not for you. And here's what I believe happens. Some of you have it in your mind that you don't need to think deeply about God because I will. And when you get that thought into your mind, this lie into your mind, that idea has consequences. Here are the consequences. I think that lie robs you of your love for God. I think that lie that you should not have to think deeply about God or carefully about God, it robs you of your love for God. Somewhere along the way, we started to believe that love for God and thinking deeply about God, like knowing God, are somehow like competing ends or goals, as if there's like thinking deeply about God and then like loving God and worshiping him and feeling deeply about him. And those two things are like far, far apart. But you realize there's no other place in your life where you think that, right? Like, if you have a girlfriend or boyfriend right now, you don't think, like, the more I get to know them, the more I'll hate them, right? You don't think that. No, 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 you think the opposite. You go, like, the more I get to know them, the more I love them. Like, when you meet someone initially, you might have, like, kind of fun with them or, might like, enjoy your time around them, but you know it's a superficial relationship, right? And you know it's a superficial relationship because you don't even know where they were born, you don't know how they grew up, you don't know their family, but when you've known a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a best friend or a husband or a wife for years You start to know more about them, and because you know them deeply, you can love them completely. And that's what we're called to. And listen, when you just kind of shirk off the idea that you're supposed to know things about God and know theology and know big Bible words, it impacts your love. It robs you of your ability to love God. Listen, it robs you of your ability to love God. Um, It it diminishes your ability to enjoy God. And here's why I know this is true. Because in every other area of your life, when you know something deeply, you enjoy it more here's why I know this. If you've ever watched a movie with someone who makes movies, isn't that a fascinating experience? Sometimes annoying experience, okay? Right, but but, but like it's a fascinating experience because they know it deeply. They understand how it came together. They know the script or they know the shot or they know the editing process and so they're watching it and you can tell they're enjoying it on a deeper level than you are because they're seeing stuff that you're not seeing. It's the same thing if you've ever listened to music or been to a concert with someone who really knows music. Like maybe you're just kind of like, I like listening to music. That's fine. Everyone likes listening to music. It doesn't make you unique. But when you're with a musician, someone really knows their stuff, and you're listening to a song, you get to see them enjoy it because they know it deeper. It's the same with food. Like someone who really understands food and flavor and texture and how that all goes together, you see them enjoy a meal, you're like, I'm not enjoying it like that, right? Because when you know something deeply, you get to enjoy it more. And the same is true with our God. Like the more you get to know God, the more you'll enjoy him. The more you'll love worship, the more you'll love reading the word. The people who open the Bible and know the Bible deeply love their quiet times. The people who are intimidated to study theology and think deeply about God, they can't really get into it because it's just kind of superficial knowledge. See, it robs you of your love for God. It robs you of your enjoyment for God. And listen, next, it hinders your capacity, your ability to evangelize. Like it's hard to tell people about a God you don't know very well it's hard to tell people about a God that you just kind of superficially know some things about. It's like the same way when some subject comes up in public conversation that everyone's talking about, but you don't really know anything about it. You just kind of heard about it on the news. It's hard to have a decent conversation with people about it. I think some people treat God that way, where God's just sort of this person they sort of know some things about, but they don't really know deeply, so it's almost impossible to share your faith. And then finally, this lie weakens your capacity, your ability to fight sin, your defenses against sin. Because hear me, the more you know about God, the less appealing your sin looks. The more you know about the real thing, the God of the universe, the more silly and small and pathetic your sin looks. But the less you know about God, the more enticing and appealing your sin looks. You thinking deeply about God, that is not something for pastors, it's not something for theologians, it is something all of us need to do, and here's why. Because listen, you cannot trust God if you don't know God. You can't trust God if you don't understand God. And some of you talk about trusting God and you want to trust God with your life and your future and your career and your marriage and your family, but you don't actually know anything about God. And when you start to know things about God, when you know his word and you know his promises and you know what he's accomplished on your behalf, you can start to trust him with your life. See, to to trust God, to trust God is always going to start with us knowing God, knowing his promises, knowing his truth, knowing his word. So here's the question I want to ask you tonight. Third question do you realize you're a theologian? Do you realize that you are a theologian? And I know, again, you're like, no, I'm not a theologian professionally. I know you're not a theologian professionally. Like no one in this room is a theologian professionally. But do you realize that every time you think about God, you are doing theology? So the only question isn't, are you a theologian or not? Is are you any good at it? Are you any good at it? Or do you just kind of randomly think thoughts about God, but you haven't really put it together? And hear me, this is not a task for like a day or a week or a weekend. This is a task for the entire rest of your life to see God fully for who he is, to think deeply about him. Because when you buy into the lie that thinking deeply about God is only for pastors, for theologians, for people up on stage, you'll miss out on all the goodness that God wants for your life. Here's the final text, the final command that we're gonna look at tonight in verse 16 It says this. It says, see to it that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance and rights as the oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit a blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what had been done. So one of the things I love about the book of Hebrews is the book of Hebrews is going to cite extensively, like I said, from the Hebrew scriptures from the Old Testament. And and my assumption in reading the text I just read here um, is that some of you, when you hear the story of Esau, you know exactly what we're talking about. But but I think for others of you, I share about Esau, and you see this, and you have no idea what's being talked about here. And so I want to share for you the story this is quoting from, because I think this will help us understand what the actual command is and what the idea is that might have some consequences in our life. But here's how I want to set up the story. It's going to be out of Genesis chapter 25. But before we get there, I want to lay out the characters in this story so you're not confused on this. Let me give you the family tree of Genesis 25 that this is quoting from. Okay, so there's Isaac here, um, who is the dad, okay? Uh, or I'm sorry, Isaac, well, um, Isaac is the dad. I got that right. I got very confused for a second. All right, Isaac is the dad and Rebecca is his wife. Rebecca is the mom here. And then there's two twins. There's two twins here. There's Esau and then there's Jacob. There's Esau, and then there's Jacob. Jacob is ultimately going to be renamed later in the story. And if you don't know what Jacob's new name is, Jacob's new name is Israel. So Israel is literally the person who fathers the entire nation of Israel. But you've got this family tree. You've got Isaac, you've got Rebekah, and then you've got two twins, Esau, who comes out first, and Jacob, who comes out second. Now that sets up the story for us. We're going to see this tension, this compilation between Jacob and Esau. And I want you to see this here in Genesis chapter 25 and verse 27. It says this, the boys grew up, this is Jacob and Esau, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Okay, so, so the boys grew up and Esau's like the guy who's out in the field. He's out hunting. He's wearing a flannel, like he's got a big beard. He is out in the fields. He is hunting something down, right? And then you've got Jacob. Jacob's content to hang among the tents. He's a homebody. He just wants to kind of hang back. He doesn't want to go out into the fields. And then it says this in verse 28. It says, Isaac, who had gone out, Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebecca loved Jacob. I love this. Isaac, the dad, is like, you bring me home steaks, I like you better. (laughs) Like, that's how it goes. (laughs) Who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebecca loved Jacob. Verse 29, it says, once when Jacob was cooking some stew, I love that this whole story is actually going to involve stew here. Uh, When Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob... Quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was called Edom. So Jacob is cooking some stew at home. Esau, his older brother by like a minute, comes into the tent and is like, "I see you're making some food there, and I want some." That's how the story begins. And then Jacob does this, and this is kind of like a a, a dirty move by Jacob. But 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 here's how the Bible goes. This is actually one of the things I love about the Bible. Number one um, is that it's honest about the heroes of the Bible. Jacob's a hero of the Bible, but he's about to do kind of a dirtbag thing here. The second is it shows how dysfunctional are, so if you ever think your family is the only dysfunctional one, just go read the Bible. Alright, alright, verse 31. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Okay. Okay. So, it we don't do the birthright thing here in America. So let me just kind of um, open this up for you. In our culture, generally speaking, unless your family has just gone way off the rails, the general thing you do is if the, if the dad and mom have two kids, the idea in the will is like when you die, it goes 50-50, right? If you have three, it's like a third, a third, a third. You get it all the way down. Not so in this culture. Not so in almost every culture that's ever existed before our moment right now, which should give us some pause and humility. Here's what happened in those cultures. The oldest son got the biggest portion, and then the younger got a little less, and the further you went down, the less and less and less you got. So when it says the birthright here, what it's talking about is an ancient idea called primogenitor, and the idea here is that the oldest child, the oldest son, would receive the most. The oldest son would receive the best of the inheritance. So there's a million dollars being passed down. Older son gets 800,000 of it. Younger son gets 200,000 of it. Tough luck, younger son. You were born second. And Jacob's going, I was just born like a minute after you. And he goes, tough luck. You're the younger son. I'm the older brother. And so what does Jacob want in exchange for a bowl of stew? Your birthright. Give me your birthright. And in this moment, Esau is hungry. Esau is starving. Jacob sees his opportunity. And what does he do? He asks for the birthright. Verse 32, here's how it goes on. Esau says this, look, I'm about to die which is so dramatic, right? You ever did, I, I'm so hungry, I could die right now. I could die. I'm about to die. What good is a birthright to me? Like, stop thinking clearly at all, right? Like, what good is a birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. They're like three years old, okay? Like, swear, pinky swear, right? Like, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of soup. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew. Like how kind of him. He's like, you can have the soup and some bread for your share of the inheritance. And then he goes on. He ate and drank and got up and left. And then here's the interesting part of the story. So Esau despised his birthright. This is an interesting part of the story, isn't it? Esau has this birthright. Esau has this capacity to inherit more from his parents than his little brother does, his little brother by two minutes, but he has this ability to inherit more and he sells it away. He gives away his God-given, God-ordained birthright to his little brother and he starts to hate it and he starts to despise it. So if you remember back to what Hebrews was trying to teach us, Hebrews talks about Esau. And it talks about this person who gives up what God has for him. He, he says, make sure no one is godless like Esau, who sold, his meal, who sold for a single meal his inheritance as the oldest son. Here's what Esau does. Esau has this God-given, God-earned, God-ordained birthright that he has for himself. And he sells it away for something so small and simple and useless as a bowl of stew a bowl of stew that will fill his belly in this moment. But it's not like perpetual stew. It's not like he gets stew every day for the rest of his life. It's like one little bowl of stew. He'll be hungry again by nightfall. But that's what he sells it for. And here's what I think the book of Hebrews is trying to get into our minds. And here's what I think lingers in some of our minds, this idea, this lie, the final one I wanna look at. And here's what it is, that there is something better outside of God's ways. This is what Esau has. Esau has his birthright, his God-ordained, God-given birthright that he is supposed to receive, this inheritance from his father, this inheritance from God, and he sells it away for something small and temporary and pitiful and pathetic as a bowl of stew. That's what he does. You know what the tragedy is? When we believe this lie, when we believe the lie that there's something better outside of God's ways, we do the exact same thing with our inheritance from Christ. We sell it away for something small and pitiful and stupid and terrible compared to what God has for us. Do you know what this lie does? This lie destroys things. This lie destroys marriages. Like like there are marriages and some of the marriages you know in your own life where there was a healthy, beautiful, good marriage and family and someone threw it all away for some temporary pleasure. Like God-ordained, God-protected, God-honoring marriage, and someone throws it all away for a one-night fling for some small little thing. You sacrifice the good thing that God has for you for something that can never sustain or satisfy you. This lie destroys marriages. Listen, on a personal end, here's what I'm aware of. This lie destroys ministries and pastors and ministry leaders. Like in the last couple of years, if you follow the news at all on some of this stuff, there are famous pastors, famous ministry leaders, evangelists, worldwide known people who have destroyed their lives and destroyed their reputations because they had all of the good things God wanted. And they threw it all away because they thought there was something better outside of what God had for them. This lie, this lie does so much more. This lie creates devastating addictions. I think there are people in this room and maybe you've not told anyone this, but there's some kind of addiction, some kind of thing going on in your life. Because at some point along the way, you traded what God had for you, the great inheritance that you had in God's ways, and God's life, and God's truth. You traded it for this one little thing, and it becomes addictive, and it's taken over, and you can't quit, and you can't stop. And then finally, listen, it's not an overstatement to say that this lie is the cause and the root of all human suffering. Because if you go all the way back to the first story in the Bible, it's the story of Adam and Eve in the Bible. They have everything. God has blessed them with all good things. God has given them a garden. He has given them literal paradise. But then a thought comes into their mind, an idea. And here's the idea. It comes from the serpent. The serpent says, if you eat from that tree that God told you not to eat from, you will become like God. And what have we learned tonight? We've learned that ideas have consequences. And the idea that Adam and Eve had in their mind, that if we go outside of God's paradise he's created for us, then that will work out. That'll be better for us. God's holding out on us. That idea has consequences. And that unleashed the curse of sin into this world. See, ideas have consequences. And the idea that some of you have bought into or maybe continually buy into is there's something better outside of what God has. And the three words I want to proclaim over you tonight, that whatever that thing is that's tempting you, whatever you think is out there, whatever life you think you can attain by walking away from God and his commands and his call on your life, the three words I want to speak over you tonight are these three words. Three words. God is better. God's better. He's so much better. He's so much better than whatever you're wanting, whatever you're craving, whatever you're desiring, whatever's drawing you and luring you away and tempting you right now, whatever's calling your name, whatever this weekend you were tempted to step into, whatever right now as you're sitting here you're getting texts on your phone about, God is better. He's better. And Esau trades away this wonderful birthright he has for a bowl of soup that won't even satisfy him into tomorrow. And for some of us, we need to recognize that we're on the cusp of doing that in our lives of throwing away all the good things God has for us because we want this small temporary pleasure that will never satisfy. Here's the question, final one I wanna ask tonight. What's the thing that you are tempted to trade away for God's blessing? What's the thing you're tempted to trade away God's blessing for? What's the thing in your life that's calling your name? What's the red bowl of soup right now that you're so seeing and you think is so attractive because in the moment, that bowl of soup meant more to Esau than his birthright? But in the long run, it ended up destroying him. What's that thing? Because listen, if you're not able to identify it, if you're not able to say it out loud, if you're not able to put an eye on it and say, this is the thing that if I'm not careful, I will run to and throw away all the good things God has for me, it will end up destroying you. So here's what I want us to understand tonight. I want us to understand the statement I've said since the beginning, three words, that ideas have consequences. The ideas that run through your mind have consequences. And your capacity, your ability to follow the commands of God in Scripture isn't up to your willpower. It's up to what's going on in your mind. That's why in Romans chapter 12 it says that you are transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I want to invite all of us tonight, as we close in worship, our worship team will come back up to just kind of bring before the Lord whatever lies, whatever things are going on inside of our heart because we always are going to combat the lies of the enemy with the truth of the Word of God. We're always going to combat the lies of the world with the truth of what God actually has to say. Because ideas have consequences in your life, in my life, and in this world. And until we recognize that, we will never learn to be the type of people who walk in obedience to the commands of God in scripture. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for tonight. And I thank you for your commands. And God, I just recognize how utterly unable I am to obey or, or walk in any kind of faithfulness to those commands without your Holy Spirit in me. And I recognize that over this room. So for anyone in this room tonight who's not put their faith and trust in Jesus, who's not looked to Jesus and called on him to be their savior and salvation, I pray they do so tonight. And God, for those of us who have, I pray we would walk in a humble obedience that recognizes that you are the good God of truth, that you are the good God who's better than anything else in this world, anything else in our lives. God, help us to have hard conversations. God, help us to be okay with the disapproval of the world and our culture and the elites and the people who think they're, God, everything together in our culture, God, help us to be okay with that. God, help us to choose you as the better one. God, help us to choose you as the one we want over all things. God, even as we worship right now, may we worship in such a way that recognizes the truth of your word and the light of your salvation. We pray this in Christ's name. And all God's people said, real loud, amen.